every happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, are you doing any baking in quarantine? Not too, too much, no? A little bit here and there. Of course, the coronavirus continues to be the biggest story everywhere. Everyone is staying inside, staying healthy, we hope. Not too much baking here either, David, but lots of walking, going for a lot of walks. Nice and healthy. Another thing you can do, listen to podcasts, maybe while you're going for a walk or doing some baking. David, are you ready for a history podcast? I suppose we could do a podcast, Neil. Then I'll ask, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, the year is 1656. Picture yourself in a cramped private house in the outskirts of London. The atmosphere is electric. On the one hand, it's tense. Everyone here knows that what they're doing, if not strictly illegal, is at least highly frowned upon. On the other hand, this is the most exciting entertainment phenomena of 1656 London. But don't just picture yourself as yet another spectator because there are some interesting people in this packed crowd furtively paying to enter. For one, there's a government spy here to give a report on this possibly subversive house of ill repute. And on the other, there's the man who's brought it all together, the playwright who is attracting the cream of London society in spite of the fact that plays are illegal here, fresh out of prison, noseless, and allegedly the bastard son of William Shakespeare, William Davenant, has promised something new, something never before seen on the English stage, something revolutionary. David, theater was not what I was going to guess was going on in this house. Of all the crazy things that I thought would draw that sort of crowd, the theater was not what I was expecting. So I'm trying to imagine myself in 1656, like you said, what is going on in the world that theater is outlawed? So the big item here is Oliver Cromwell. You see, this is well into England's brief period as the protectorate. Oliver Cromwell has led the revolutionary forces during the English Civil War. He won. Then, when the new parliamentary republic that replaced the king started to break down into acrimony and debate, he seized control, and now he is, to all extents and purposes, the government of England. 
But for ordinary people, there are a lot of effects that the fact that Oliver Cromwell is effectively dictator at this point has. For example, he's outlawed Christmas, which was very controversial. Only slightly less controversial, he also outlawed the theater. Both of these were driven by his deep Puritan faith and its rejection of all kinds of entertainments that were believed to weaken people's morals. And certainly, at the time, theater was a very dubious proposition in people's minds. David, I think that's one of the worst case scenarios for a dictator if they outlaw Christmas and theater. That is about as bad as it gets. Of course, history is full of examples of much worse dictators, but man, I really don't want anyone to ban Christmas again. Banning Christmas, frankly, is the weird one here. I mean, it is, after all, rather famously a Christian celebration, and the Puritans themselves were Christian. So, somewhat unusual. Theater, on the other hand, had, as I've said, a dubious reputation at the time. Go back a generation to the famous Elizabethan stage. William Davenant, who we're currently discussing, was the Poet Laureate. The man who was Poet Laureate before him was Ben Jonson, one generation before. Ben Jonson, famously, spent time in prison on death row after killing a fellow actor in a duel related to the theater. It was intense, it had a reputation for being drunken, violent, and wild. And that sort of helps to explain why Puritan preachers of that generation disapproved of it so heavily, which in turn spills over to why Oliver Cromwell, coming up later, decides he's just going to ban it all. I can understand, David, that theater might have had a reputation for being a little on the wild side, but it's hard to imagine England without the theater. Like you said, not long before this, the Elizabethan theater era was famous and is still studied to this day. And even today, Britain has a strong theater scene and a lot of great things happening there. So I guess I'm not surprised that Oliver Cromwell couldn't completely stamp out theater in London. By all records, he came close. Every official theater was closed down, and ordinary people do not typically stage large-scale theatrical productions without the ability to organize and charge money for it. So in the early part of the 1650s, in the historical record, there's simply no record of any kind of theatrical performances in London. Now, the loophole that William Davenant on this day in 1656 is exploiting relates to the requirement that the banned act of theater requires you to be in a public place and charging money. He's in a private home, and in theory, he's not charging money to see the show. He's merely charging money to enter the door. But that's a 
thin distinction, and certainly at the time, many people were very afraid that the government was going to crack down. But as it happens, Davenant had already contacted the English Secretary for State under Oliver Cromwell, Secretary Thurlow, and was already working on getting permission, not merely to run secretive, tiny performances in a cramped private home, but plans to restart theater, but this time as a propaganda arm of Cromwell's dictatorship. What a twist, David. The government might use the very art that they banned for propaganda. How's that going to work? Well, they've picked the right guy, or rather the right guy has picked them. Or maybe, view it in a slightly different, more Cromwellian way, the wrong guy. William Davenant is a theater legend already by this point. It starts off, of course, with the rumor, current at the time, that his father was not Mr. Davenant, tavern owner, but rather William Shakespeare, notorious London tavern goer, and also wrote some plays, I believe. But there's more to it than just an alleged genetic connection that makes him famous in the theater at this point. He's been the rising star of the English theater when he was young. He got into the royal court, became a favorite of the queen, stabbed a guy in a tavern brawl, had to flee to Holland, got a pardon, came back from Holland, became a favorite of the queen again, got syphilis, had his nose cut off as part of a treatment that was current at the time that Apparently the syphilis went into remission, so I guess we could kind of argue it worked, although definitely not on medical grounds. And then, after all of these crazy twists and turns that had not made him respectable, his reputation for just producing popular theater and also great court dramas that were used as propaganda at the court of Charles I got him appointed poet laureate which was a rare honor since there's only one at a given time. So he's been the darling of the stage. So in one sense, it makes a lot of sense to pick him to be your guy to do theater as propaganda. On the other hand, he's a notorious royalist. He's been a favorite of the queen he did propaganda for Charles I, the guy whose head Oliver Cromwell cut off. And even after that, he initially fled to France with Charles II, briefly attempted to serve as Charles II's governor of Maryland in the United States, but he never reached there. His ship got intercepted at sea, and he ended up being arrested for the first time by the government of Oliver Cromwell and spent some time in the Tower of London only to be released, which is when we pick up the story again in 1656. And from that second perspective, picking him to be your official propagandist is a little bit crazy. That is quite the life there, David. A lot to digest. 
But I guess that's what makes for great storytelling is if you have great life experiences. So tell us more about the government plan here and how Davenaw is going to fit into this. So the plan is only partially the government's. Davenaw, shortly after being released from the Tower of London, I should mention John Milton, the guy who wrote Paradise Lost, actually interceded on Davenaw's behalf to both prevent him from being executed and also ensure his release, even though Milton famously was actually very pro-Republic uh, and therefore pro-Cromwell, and Davenaw was mostly on the opposite side, their mutual respects as poets made them stick together. Some big names coming into play here, David. One or two. Anyway, Davenaw, once he got out of prison almost immediately writes to Thurlow, the Secretary of State, and he has a proposition. He says, you've banned theater. This isn't popular with the theater going public, and it's hurting actors who are out of work, and you're not replacing it with anything, and this is your problem people who are unhappy that you've eliminated theater have nothing else to love about your government. You should create stories that people can see and love the way they used to love theater. And those stories should be telling your story. You should be explaining to people why, for example, your government is good. Or, to pick another example, why the Spanish are terrible, I should just interject amongst the many wars that Oliver Cromwell's protectorate was involved in. The one relevant in 1656 was their war against Spain in the West Indies. So, these are stories you want to tell, and I can tell them for you. You and I just need to come up with a way to legitimize a theater business in the right part of town without letting all of those other theater companies you hate and have shut down reopen. And once they put their heads together, they come up with a plan for how they're going to do that. Well, this sounds like a smart business move by Davenaw, at least, David. If his entire business has been shut down by the government... If he can get back in and up and running, he'll be the only game in town. That's his plan, and one of several benefits he's hoping to get from it. But as I've said, they need to justify it, a reason why his theater is different, special, and okay. And as it happens, his experience in France with Charles II has given him an idea because he's encountered a strange, foreign form of theater all the way from Italy. They call it the opera. The opera. So this is a foreign idea for England at the time? It's strange. Some travelers have heard of it, of course, but nobody's been doing anything like it on the English stage. And as he explains to Secretary Thurlow, this... Opera involves people singing all the time. 
That's very important because musical concerts aren't forbidden. They can still go ahead. That's allowed. So, Davenant says, this isn't a play. This isn't theater. This is an opera. Everybody sings. It's music. Hello, loophole. So, we should put it together. You should allow me and help me to open a theater on Drury Lane where we will perform opera talking about how awful the Spanish are, which we can both agree we both hate the Spanish, so let's do it. All right, David, so they found a novel way to put on a play. As long as they're singing, it's not a play, it's a concert. How's this going to go over with the public, David, and with the other theater operators? So, again, Davina proves smart. It takes time to set up a theater, obviously. And while he's doing this, we circle back around again to his early Rutland House performances, the ones we started this series off with. Those crazy events with all of those wild people in a private house near London. Exactly. To the people who are attending, they don't know he's got a deal with the government to reopen a theater. It seems rebellious and the theater world is not rejecting this guy as a government stooge they're excited he's somebody who's getting around the law and performing the plays they love and to the other competitors well he doesn't care about them they're probably not happy but most of them have had to find other jobs it's been almost a decade since the laws went into force which is actually a problem for Davenant. He needs to find actors to fill out his whole production. And the traditional core of trained actors that worked for guys like Ben Johnson and William Shakespeare back in the Elizabethan era, the theaters have been shut down for a decade. All those guys have found real jobs. Which leads us to his last and probably greatest, craziest change to English theater that this crazy time will impart. Drumroll, please. What is it, David? So, in the Elizabethan era, as many of you may know, women were not allowed to perform on stage. That was forbidden. All of the actors had to be men. And so, you know, sometimes Juliet had a beard and you just had to accept that. Of course, it made for some great turns in some of the Shakespearean comedies because brothers and sisters could look quite alike since they were all played by men. Exactly. Davenant realizes he's working with a new government who already view theater as kind of disgusting. So why not lean into it? The old laws don't apply. It's time to break all the rules. It's time to hire actresses, women, to play the roles of women. It is, to English theater at the time, revolutionary, and the critics of the time agree that it is incredibly more realistic than the old way of doing things. It's somewhat shocking, David, that it would take a decade-long ban for them to realize that having a woman play a woman is more realistic, 
But good, they came around to it eventually. And so it seems like our tale is winding up and coming to an end. Davinon gets to open his theater. Some of his early plays have titles like Francis Drake in the West Indies. Sorry, did I say plays? I mean, some of his early operas have titles like The Siege of Rhodes, and they're all about military glory and the Spanish being awful, which is what the government wanted, so everybody's happy. And the crowds love them. They get to watch something. There's singing. There's dancing. There's new, bold scenery like never before. Davinon is advertising everything. What could possibly go wrong? David, the way you ask that question makes me incredibly nervous that something is going to go wrong. Well, again, it all depends on your perspective. Because Oliver Cromwell turns out not to be immortal. Which means, with the passage of time, he dies. And then it turns out, he was a dictator and there was basically no one else in the English government actually allowed to be in any kind of central position of power. And the entire protectorate government starts falling apart. It's a crisis. And people are looking for leadership. And they look not to the protectorate government that's failing them. They look to the old ways, back to the kings, back to Charles II, still in France, but not for long because people want him back. They want him restored to the throne. And suddenly it's the restoration period. New government, new laws. Can this new form of theater survive this drastic change in political events? Well, David, it seems like we've had some positive turns for the theater, despite the fact that theater was banned. We have women back on the stage. We have these new operas, musical concerts. How does the new government feel about the changes? Well, there's lots of good news, actually. Charles II loves the idea of theater. He sees supporting the theater as a way of differentiating his government from Oliver Cromwell's famously theater-hating government. Seems like a good point of differentiation. He wants to bring it back. William Davenant, the businessman side of him, doesn't like that because he used to have a monopoly on doing plays in London and this whole free market thing sounds like a terrible idea. It makes it harder if you have to compete with actual competition. But on the plus side, he does see the artistic merit of being allowed to do what he wants to. And Charles II turns out to be an excellent choice of king from a theater perspective, not only because he loves theater, but because he loves women. And because he loves women, he supports the idea of actresses. He also supports the idea of comedies involving surprisingly raunchy scenes where actresses lose more clothing than you would expect from the time period, which was shocking to his contemporaries. But it does mean that the old laws about only men being allowed to be actors never get reinstated in spite of some efforts to push back against this newfangled women-on-the-stage phenomenon. 
good for theater realism anyway if the women are played by women. And of course, some of Charles II's most famous mistresses were actresses, so that also gives the stage a certain boost in visibility, if not respectability. But then William Davenant has never really been about respectability. And he actually adds in another interesting addition to his repertoire at his cockpit theater in Drury Lane, which he's still running in spite of the changing government. First, he decides to go along with Charles II's bring back the old policies by bringing back some Shakespeare plays that had not been allowed during Cromwell's rule. He rewrites Macbeth a little bit to make Charles II show up and look good in it, but otherwise does a surprisingly faithful job of bringing it back to the stage. And then he introduces yet another grand tradition in the English theater that will last up till today. He decides he's going to do an adaptation of one of William Shakespeare's famous plays, in this case, The Tempest. But deciding that for modern audiences it would be kind of boring, he decides he's going to spice it up by throwing in some songs and dance numbers and better scenery. So that's neat. Sort of a precursor to a West Side story, if you will. Yeah, the same sort of idea, only a generation after Shakespeare's death, and it's already taken off. And that sort of is where I want to wrap this whole thing up a little bit. A story about a guy who seemed to have, at the start of his career path, everything right, nothing that could derail him, and then got arrested multiple times, ended up in the Tower of London for a while, and seemed like multiple times over theater was going to die in his dreams of being a playwright with it, and instead he invented or popularized a number of things that would become defining and important parts of the English theater tradition that you may not think of as being something that had to be invented, but none of which really were parts of the theater in the days of William Shakespeare, when we tend to think of English theater at its peak. So to save theater, David, they had to kill theater. Sounds like it would make a great play. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And if you want to know more about Oliver Cromwell and that period in English history, well, this isn't his first appearance on the podcast. Way back in episode 17, The Awkward Dinner Party, we met Oliver Cromwell and I won't spoil what happens, but there is an awkward dinner party. So go back and give that one a listen. All of our episodes are free wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at When Art Thou. Let us know what you think about Oliver Cromwell. David, we'd like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz? I'm ready for a quiz, Neil. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a lot of people are baking right now because of the coronavirus and all the extra time we have on our hands stuck at home. 
So I thought we'd go back in history with a quiz about bread. Bread. All right. Start us off. We'll start at the very beginning, David. The first bread was made approximately how many years before Christ? Oh my. Bread is incredibly ancient. I know that the ancient Egyptians had it, and I believe they were at least several thousand years before Christ. I'm going to guess, let's say, approximately 4,000 years before Christ. Good guess, David. Double it. 8,000 years before Christ, you're right, it was in Egypt, the first known creation of bread. Now, one type of bread that has been popular during the pandemic is sourdough, but of course it requires a starter, and some people have starters that have been around a long time, like former Canadian Senator Ione Christensen, who has a starter that is 120 years old. But we're going to give the record to Seamus Blackley, who made sourdough from a starter that was how old, David? Huh, how old is the oldest sourdough starter? That's another one I don't know, but if it's more than 120 years, my goodness, I'd have to say 300 years old? This is unbelievable. His sourdough starter was approximately 4,500 years old. He's a tech developer, and he made an ancient Egyptian recipe with yeast recovered from ancient clay pots used about 4,500 years ago as part of an experiment to better understand the gut bacteria of ancient humans. That is crazy. I think he ate it, too. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure he actually tried this 4,500-year-old sourdough. Nuts. Another type of bread got its name from Napoleon when he demanded a loaf of dark rye bread for his horse during the Prussian campaign. What is the name of that bread? Well, I believe that that would be dark rye bread, German for something, French, I've got to say, pumpernickel. You are correct, David. Napoleon ordered pain pour Nicole, which meant bread for Nicole, his horse. To Germanic ears, the request sounded like pumpernickel. And that's the term we use today for this traditional loaf of bread. Legend has it that whoever eats the last piece of bread has to do what? Throw out the bag? I'm not up on that kind of a legend. Perhaps bake more? Well, maybe this would accomplish the same thing, David. Legend has it you have to kiss the cook. Ha! Last question for you. The first bread slicing machine was used in what state? Huh. First bread slicing machine. And I'm sure it was a state of euphoria, David, but we're looking for the actual American state. We're looking for the American state. All right. I really don't know the answer. So I think I'm going to go, well, I think East Coast would make the most sense. And we need to think in terms of population. I'll go with the very populous New York state. I like how you figured that out, David, but you're going to be surprised. It was used by the Chillicothe Baking Company in Missouri in 1928. It had been invented by Otto Rawetter, which probably caused him to say, this is the greatest thing since, well, right now. That late, 1928, I honestly would have been believed that they had introduced it earlier. 
Well, David, now you know all about the history of bread. Thanks for playing. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>